Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names, and now part of the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is with Darren Brown, who is on Broadway right now with his new show, Secret. For those of you who don't know him, he's this UK phenomenon. Uh, He's a mentalist. He's a hypnotist. He's a mind reader. He's an illusionist. He's an author. This guy is incredible. And I don't even know where to start. I don't know where to end with this introduction because I just can't give away any of the secrets. I went to his show. I actually got called up on stage. I don't know. I was part of one of these tricks and I still don't know how he did it. It's just incredible. Um, You've got to go see the show. I, that's really all I can say. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where else to go with this. Um, other other than that, it was uh, really impressive to me that um, he's actually he was very introverted, very humble, and it kind of it's the opposite of this you know big stage presence, charismatic guy that he plays during the show. So it was nice to have an intimate conversation, as the tagline of this podcast claims. So everybody, before we get into the episode. Visit me online at thetheaterpodcast.com or broadwaypodcastnetwork.com slash TTP. Show your support at ttp.fm slash Patreon. And now everybody, please enjoy this episode with Darren Brown. So this introduction, I actually have to admit, I plagiarized from your website. But from stage to screen, two-time Olivier Award-winning Darren Brown has mesmerized millions worldwide with his unique brand of mind-reading, persuasion, and psychological illusion. Now, for the first time ever, this UK phenomenon and Netflix star brings his talents to Broadway for the first time in his newest show, Secret. Darren Brown, welcome to the theater podcast. That was a very nice introduction. Thank you. Did you? <laughs> Which I think I wrote myself at some point. <laughs> well, God, I don't know where to start. I saw your show, blew me away. Uh, There's a friend of mine who's um, he's actually he's, he's British, and I was like, "Have you heard of this guy, Darren Brown?" He he was like, "Oh my God, yeah!" Like I love it. Just this this great thing. Like you are a UK phenomenon, and now you're bringing this no. this great phenomenon, this great show to the US, and it, uh, we'll get into the show, but as we normally do on the podcast, I actually want to back up and talk about your childhood. Like, mm. where did you grow up? Where are you mm. from? So I'm from uh, south of London in a fairly, I don't know what the uh, equivalent would be, but a place, a place called Purley, which is part of Croydon, which is it's a very sort of middle class, fairly sort of drab, I think it's probably okay to say. Uh kind of place and then I um too close to London to have anything going on at least when I was there I'm 48 now so it's a while ago and then I ended up studying in Bristol which is a beautiful leafy uh city in the west of England and I stayed there for a long time um but yeah originally just sort of suburbia so when when did the love for like is it magic is it All illusions this... is like what do you call it what about well I don't know I, I managed to avoid any kind of labels in England which is is great. I mean, that's a really nice situation to be in back home. But here it's slightly fiddlier because I do need to, at some point, pin down and say what I do. Um, I started off, when I studied law and German uh, at Bristol University. Um, and I realized early on I didn't want to be a lawyer or a German. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I saw a hypnotist perform in my first year. And it was 
kind of extraordinary. And he was, it wasn't one of those shows of people being embarrassed. It was sort of just fascinating. So I left that night determined to learn how to do that. So I did. So I started off as a hypnotist. And I was doing shows and um, that kind of thing. And then I, I, it's, it's a difficult job to really make a living out of unless you're prepared to do the tackiest sort of show that often gets done. I didn't want to do that. So I started doing magic tricks, close-up magic, because this guy that I'd seen, the hypnotist, also did a few tricks informally afterwards. Like sleight of hand, Mr. Exactly, kind of yeah. Stuff. So yeah. he was kind of my only sort of really role model at that time. So uh, I did that. And then I ended up earning a living as a magician. But the, the psychological stuff and the suggestion-based stuff has always interested me more because that's really where I started. So I was veering it all the time into that, into this world of sort of psychological effects and psychological illusions, mind reading rather than, you know, finding your playing card. And uh, I wrote a couple of books for magicians that made me well-known in that, in that world. Mm -hmm. And then in 2000 or 99, or, yeah, probably 99, 98, 99, a, a TV company were looking for someone to be a mind reader on British TV because it hadn't been done for a long time. And I did. And then uh, they signed me up eventually. They spent a couple of years looking for somebody like me, uh, liked me, and then um, signed me up. And I had my first TV show in the UK in 2000. And uh, it also then brought with it a wave of sort of mentalism as a bit of a thing. There were mentalists around before me, certainly. There was sort of Kreskin and people like mm -hmm. that here. And, um, but it, it certainly for a good chunk of time before I got going in the UK, it wasn't really particularly anything that was popular. I think now there's a lot more magicians as they get into magic now. This sort of mind reading thing is a lot more popular, which is probably largely my fault. Um, but yeah, that's so that's how it all that's how it all started. So it was your early twenties then. That, mm. Like I thought you were doing it from when like sleight of hand stuff when you were a little kid. No, no, not really. I had a magic set when I was young, as a lot of kids do. <laughs> like uh, cut the rope, do the rings. Yeah, ex yeah. yeah exactly. Literally <laughs> yeah. all that. And I, I. I sort of then forgot about it. No, it was when I was, it was when I, it was later at, at university. I think I was uh, that thing of magic's a, like the quickest, most fraudulent route to impressing people. So if you need that in your life because you're underconfident or you don't feel impressive, it's a great way of of making that happen, of of impressing people. Um, and it's easy because you're you're cheating. So people go, oh, you're amazing. You should be on television. And you might, it might be something you've just pulled out of a Christmas crack. You know, people don't, how do you know whether it's something that's taken years of skill or something that's just a trick, a trick deck of cards or whatever. So um, it's a very easy way of getting that sort of reaction. For me, that was very important, but certainly, yeah, more so around uh, sort of university age and, and the, the desire to perform. I was probably quite sort of insufferable, I think, at that time. Yeah, well, early But we 20s. all look back and find ourselves excruciating, don't we? That's kind oh, of, oh, that's, yeah. that's early, part of growing up, isn't early it? Early 20s, yeah, I mm. thought I could rule the world, but. <laughs> I, now in my late 30s, I still think I can, but who knows. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the interesting thing for me, I was reading up about neuro-linguistic programming, mm -hmm. NLP, and along those lines, I, I suspect that you're probably controlling this entire interview right now. I am. <laughs> <laughs> you're dropping, dropping hints somehow for me. What is NLP, for those who don't know? NLP, and um, yeah, neuro-linguistic programming, is a... A sort of, I'd say, academically discredited, but sort of interesting world. I, I get associated with a lot, and I've I've had some peripheral involvement with it. Um, I'm always very careful not to sort of claim that I'm using it because um, then people get up 
upset because they say, oh, no, it's not. And so I, I never really claim I'd, I'd do anything in particular. But um, it is a, it's sort of a little bit like hypnosis without the hypnosis. Uh, it was started by these guys, Richard Bandler and John Grinder, I think, or Grinder, Grinder. Um, I don't know if you can still say Grinder nowadays. Um, <laughs> in the, I don't know, maybe 70s. Um, and yeah, it's a sort of language of persuasion and it's the sort of stuff we might associate with salesmen and therapists and so on. And it borrows from lots of different areas. So I think with the areas that it borrows from, I find quite interesting. I, I, there's a lot of persuasion in what I do and a lot of... Um, uh, the, the, my, my toolkit, if you like, is language and the, um, the ongoing experience of the audience. Mm -hmm. And I'm using the techniques of the magician as well as the hypnotist and everything. Um, but the, you know, rather than a magician with decks of cards or clever boxes and so on, I'm, it's, it's people's experience in the audience that I'm, that I'm working with. There's very little in the way of, you know, props and so on. Um, so that whole world of, of uh, how language affects us and how we form our narratives. That's really what interests me. It's the, the show is about the stories that we live by, the way that we mistake stories for reality. And it only really hit me after 18 years of touring in, in the UK uh, that, that magic, which had always struck me as quite a, sort of quite a childish thing about you know, impressing people, actually was quite a good analogy for how we edit and delete our ongoing experience of the world and turn it into a, a story. Because a magician, I'm waffling, I realize, but actually this is sort of what the show's about. The, a magician sells you a story you, and you realize when you join up the dots and reach this impossible moment at the end of it that you've, you've just edited and deleted a whole lot of stuff and turned it into this amazing story. But we do this every day with life, don't we? we, have this, well, we our brain fills in the gaps. Our brain fills in the gaps, yeah. but there's the same thing that's happening with the magic trick is sort of happening in life. Sometimes yeah. we're also being manipulated to do it, but if not, we just we just do it anyway. We find the things that confirm what we already believe and the things that fit in neatly. We ignore the things we don't believe or we don't find important, and we join up the dots and form this story. And occasionally it's good to be reminded that it is just a story because then it can can free us up in important ways. The the re reading people in general, I mean, you, you said, I, I expect you to say like, oh yeah, NLP, that's what I studied, that's how it is. But like you, you claim to not have any psychic powers. You, mm. you claim to not, you know, not know I, 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 claim, I, claim not to, I claim to not have a lot of things. I, mean, right. I just don't like to claim anything in particular. That right. I do. So, but the mind, I mean, it's, it's just mind reading. It's, but it's, it's observation and, and, I hope I hope we can talk about this. It's okay. Mm. There's a section in this in the show ooh, where ooh, ooh. no spoilers, no <laughs> oh, spoilers, no, nothing, no, no nothing spoilers. About sections. Okay, we won't even go to sections. <laughs> so reading people and learning their stories. Yeah, and you. Oh God, I, I want to die. It's, about, yeah, it's a show of mind reading. It's isn't a show it? of mind, mind reading and influence and audience participation. Some of the stuff that you read while I was there blew me away. Sure. Yeah, just blew me away, and and I'm trying to think of what I can and can't say. I can't see much of anything. Goodness! All right, everybody go see the show. End of interview. Fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah. difficult. It's difficult to talk about. I mean, I, I think um, I've done these shows for a while, and and early on, I swore the audiences to secrecy, and it's a really helpful thing because not only does it well, it just preserves a certain type of experience when you come yeah. to sit. I think if you come in expecting certain things to happen, it just sort of changes it. So yeah, it is, it is then really difficult to uh, 
talk about. But I know what you're getting at. There, there are bits in the show where I am just doing this kind of mind reading with the with the audience, and um, there are sort of warnings I make about as as to how involved people want to be because I don't always have full control over what gets revealed about people. Um, and uh, but if your question is at heart, how is it done? Which More, would be a yes. very sensible yes. question. Yes, um, it's uh, it, it's a sort of variety of, of techniques, and I'm, I'm basically using. Um, I've got one foot in that world of you know fake psychics and charlatans, and using some of their techniques, uh, but you know with a different kind of um, morality behind it, uh, and techniques that date back to the. 30s principally, which is sort of the golden age of, of stage mind reading. Um, and it's it's hard to say, because I know this is just frustrating, but sort of half explains something, but um, I, I, I can imagine what it looks and sounds like, but the key to it is, as, the, as I say on the show so many times, it's about the stories that we form. And it's it's making you it making it very hard for you in the audience to think outside of these sort of parameters that I'm that I'm setting. Um, but I could you know I could play you a video of it. I won't do this at least not after not until uh, I have a couple of martinis. But <laughs> sit down and, and freeze frame and go look. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. And you'd go oh I see oh I see. So it's it's that. It isn't magic and it isn't. Uh, it isn't like real mind reading in the sense of just reaching into someone's head and mm -hmm. telling you what they're thinking of. But it's, I think it's as close as you can get to it. Um, but the, it's about creating the effect of that, creating the, this sort of feeling of that in a room. And then once you get caught up in that, it's very hard to think outside that box. But that's sort of the point of the whole show, that we get caught up in these stories and then we mistake it for reality. Yeah, that's like, kind of the point. Yeah, you're creating this narrative. That's, yeah. that's, that's a perfect way to put it that, yeah, I was so caught up in it, I didn't even think about it, that you're creating this narrative that now we are inside this box yeah. that you have perfectly crafted. Yeah. And so we know, or you, we're just eating out of your hand, more or less. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right, that's right, that's putting it. Yeah, so you're doing a good job of, of that. Um, I actually have uh, a question from a, a Patreon patron of mine. Um, she was asking if it's hard to, to make personal relationships because hmm. I would feel like, if I was going on a date with you or if I was hanging out with you or whatever it is, I mean, like, is he going to find out something I don't want him to know? Or is he is he reading into me? Or, like, can people lie to you still? Can, you know, the normal white lies of life, of friendship. I, okay, well, it's hard to judge all this because I've only got I've only got my own, you know, head to look out of. But I, I don't think I, I suppose in a nutshell, if what I do professionally is control things that you can't normally control in life, I think I live by the opposite rule in in real life, which is more of a stoic maxim of you can only really you can only control your thoughts and your actions. So you should only try and control those things. If you try and control all the stuff you can't control, like what other people do and think and all the rest of it, all the things I do on stage, um, you're actually just creating frustration and anxiety for yourself. And the the the, the Stoics, the Stoic movement, was a two thousand year old, highly popular um, philosophy to the extent it was sort of what the Christians had to win over when they sort of exploded onto the scene. And, and it was uh, all this idea of it's not events in the world that cause your problems, but it's your reactions to those events. That is mm -hmm. a basic um, uh, basic sort of law of stoicism or a basic sort of principle that 
You can only control the things, you can only control your own thoughts and actions. So, but in real life, I'm, I think I'm probably very different. I'm also quite introverted and the things that just make me not really predisposed to want to go out and manipulate the world to my own ends. So I don't. When I first started, and I think I was, you know, a sort of insecure um, wannabe performer and attention seeker and the rest of it, then I, then I did. I was much more, I saw everything in terms of opportunities for influence and suggestion and so on, but... I, it's just insufferable. And also part of that is, is the desire to impress, which again is, you know, you must, it's a real thing with any sort of magic that you, because you've got this shortcut to impressing people, you end up just relying on that. So you look at a lot of older magicians and you can tell they've never really had to learn real social skills. You know, there's a real sort of oddness to a lot of older magicians. Um, and I think it's, it's actually getting over all that stuff that makes you have proper relationships in life. And you, you realize that people don't, People don't like someone that's trying to impress them. I mean, that's just not how we... Like, we yeah. all try and be funny and witty and impress people, but we don't, that's the last thing we like from other people. Is we, don't, we don't warn to people that are doing that. We warn people that are kind and, you know, nice and lovely and all those things. Um, it's tiring. It's, it's tiring, tiring to be around it's, somebody who's yeah. trying to do that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, it's not how we make connections, is it? Yeah, it, I, I would hope that if I had this skill like that, that I would be upgraded to first class when I flew every time. Mm. You know? <laughs> I mean, like, you can get me first class. Uh. <laughs> Can't you, wink, wink. The only like, thing that's remotely happened like that is I've, I've been banned from, not quite all, but pretty much all casinos in the UK. But it sounds much more exciting than this. <laughs> they use, a lot of them share the same security system software. So once you get banned from one, suddenly you can't walk into any others. So that's a, like that's exciting. But that wasn't me going out and trying to you know, you know, whatever the word is, take over the casinos or take down the casinos. It was just, um, you know, card counting and stuff that if they catch you doing, it's not illegal, but they can ask you to leave and then you then find the next the next place you try and get into doesn't want doesn't doesn't let you in. But wouldn't so a that's mentalist, about that's about the limit of it. It does sound quite exciting. Wouldn't a mentalist make a great poker player? Yeah, because I'm terrible at poker because I just don't I don't enjoy it. Like, I, but I, can you read people? Can you read their tells? Um yeah, and I've done that. I've explored that. I've explored it for TV stuff, as in kind of let's you know do a program on this or an experiment on this. Um, taught an old lady to do it um, in one of the. One of the I did a series called Trick or Treat where people would sort of, I'd sort of uh, infiltrate someone's life and they'd pick a trick or treat card and, and there was a lady in her sort of I think seventies, late seventies, who picks a trick card and then she uh, I, I picks a treat card and I uh, teach her how to play poker at that level and then send her in and play a sort of a world-class game. Uh, and it was great. I won't, I won't spoil the ending in case anybody sees it, but it was, uh, that was good fun. But I'd much rather do that than play myself. I'm just not, not interested in gambling. Scrabble, I play Scrabble before a show and I, I enjoy chess <laughs> and that's it. Well, the show itself, uh, Secret, which is now running on Broadway, uh, it had an amazing run off Broadway at the... At, at the Atlantic. At the Atlantic, yeah. yeah. It was great fun, yeah. So... I guess first off, let's start start off. Why why decide to bring why the new show and then why Broadway or off Broadway at the time? Okay, so I've toured in the UK for nearly twenty years and had a TV career for for as long or a little longer. Uh, and I, um, it's just always sort of been there as a thing to do at some point. The TV shows haven't really the, the last few years. There've been some shows on Netflix here, but we've always just sort of held back from the sort of American world in case that ever just opened up and became a thing and then I could do new material for, for here. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, it just came up as an opportunity to do this off-Broadway 
show. I've n- I have zero ambition about what I do, genuinely. So this is not really me. This isn't me going, I've got to do Broadway, but it came up as an opportunity. And I, people that I work with and produce me and so on, you know, they've got all of that business-minded thing. I don't. I just like doing what's fun. So the appeal for me was just to live in New York for a few years and the joy of doing the show that I really enjoy doing. So it was uh, four months of living in New York and playing at the Atlantic. It all seemed amazing. The theatre was lovely. And then um, those business-minded people were looking out for an opportunity to take it further. And it is amazing. It's a really, it's a very, I mean, the experience of doing the show, as in standing on stage and doing a show, it doesn't really matter where you are. You're staring into a spotlight and Mm. it doesn't particularly matter if you're in a small provincial theatre somewhere in the, an obscure corner of the UK, or whether you're playing Broadway, but the you're treated very differently, and there's a there's a, um, and audiences are very different here. There's a real warmth and a an energy to audiences here that it's not it's not really the same in UK. It's, it's a different sort of at home. We have a sort of wodge of a response, like you know, gasping or laughing or whatever, but it's like a homogenous group. Thing, whereas here it's like just individuals. No way! Because this kind of shouting and uh, uh, which is lovely. Plus, you've got, plus also interesting here. If I've got half or maybe a third of the audience of that sort of older, proper Broadway audience, so I don't think know me at all. But maybe they've heard the show's good or something, and they've mm-hmm. come to see it. Um, and like at the Atlantic, there were sort of subscription members that were coming to have a little sleep or see a play and not really, not really quite sure what they were seeing. And then the other, like another third or the other half at the Atlantic, were like proper fans that had flown in. And, were, and it was, it's lovely seeing this audience of very different parts just really come together by the end of it. It's a, it's a lovely experience on stage. So I'm very aware at the start that these, you know, it's um, demographically a very kind of diverse group from that point of view. And it's, it's, Lovely feeling it all kind of congeal by the end. Well, the stage door, stage door experience is is more of a Broadway thing, right? Not a UK. The like, what is sorry the, the stage door experience? Like people, you coming to the stage door, people wanting your autographs, uh, talking to you after the show. I think I I end up. Do you do that? Do you go yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't do it quite so much now because it kills my voice. I think with a one man show, it's very hard to go out and spend another half an hour talking. Sadly, so I do I do go out, but. Um, Normally, I have people that come around anyway, and by the time I go out, there's a few, you know, a few people left, and that's fine. But if it's a big crowd, I just I have to I have to not do it, which kills me actually, because I really it's a really nice thing to do, particularly when you're in another country, because it just is, and it just feels amazing that people have flown in and so on. It's uh, it's it's wonderful, but yeah, there's a real there's a, a a whole machinery around Broadway, and you're treated as a star, which just doesn't happen on the West End in London at all. You're very much just a guy doing a job, mm-hmm. even if the show's a big hit. Um, and here, that's that's amazing. Um, there's the mad world of unionization, which is kind of so new for us. Because like at home, it's just six people that just everyone mucks in and makes it work. And here, there's like you know 50 people with very specific jobs. You have to be very careful, you know, that you don't uh, interfere or touch something that is the prop guy's job to do that and all that. So that's kind of that was interesting. And they're all just phenomenal. Everyone's amazing at their job here and everyone's lovely and admittedly maybe this is partly because it's a one-man show so I've got like a I'm very well supported be different if I was a cast of you know 30 but I'm just just blown away by how um great everybody is and how just the atmosphere of going to work every day is amazing and this sort of bubble of um just being treated nicely and all of that. It's, just, it's lovely. I mean, you, you can go mad if you mistake that for reality. So it's quite nice to do it for a few months 
Uh, I can see how it might create monsters uh, if you mistake it for uh, real life. But yeah, it's a really lovely experience. I, I enjoy, because this is in New York, um, I, I guess people around here are less uh, crazy when you know they see celebrities walking down the street. Like mm. I've been here for almost 12 years, and I'm like, oh, there's Alec Baldwin, and I sat mm. next to Elizabeth Banks at the zoo the other day. <laughs> and I like that... It, it, well, what I've heard from... From big Broadway celebrities and other people on the podcast is that like they're, you know, they come out of the stage door and they do the autographs and they're there forever and it's great and it's great. And then they like turn the corner and they just blend right in and can go back to like, I'll put in air quotes, a normal life, yeah. right? Like they can ride the subway and not get mobbed and they can mm. get their Starbucks and it's not a big deal. Mm. And and I I, I like, I, I just, there's no question here. I'm just saying it's part of the New York experience mm, in, my, yeah. in my opinion on coming here, especially from the UK and being on Broadway and getting out there and, our media here is so good to get mm. the Broadway to get uh, Broadway out there to get the shows out there. So yeah, it's it's a really um, it's a, yeah it's a really really lovely experience. I wish we had a little, I wish we could do with just a little bit of this back home, whatever it is. Also, just just the sheer amount of money involved here is a diff, is a different world, and I suppose that makes a difference. Um, and a generally just more positive attitude, I think there is here than we have at home. It's just it's a it's it's just very uh, it's very different, and I know I'm going to miss it. I will miss it when I go back. So I want to get back to the show and the mentalism a little bit because, <clears throat> like, sometimes I walk into a party, I walk into a room, I walk into a place, and then there's like there's energy you can feel from people. There's something mm. that are like, oh, they're hiding something, or they mm. need a lot of attention, or like I can tell quickly with certain people, like at least I assume certain things, and maybe it's an mm. assumption because I'm just untrained. Um, but is, has, has there been anything in your life and your experience where you've just been really just blown away by something that you've discovered or something that you've found out about someone that you hoped wasn't true? <laughs> and then it was. Um, I, it, it's interesting doing the show because you, you or I, um, uh, what, what I find interesting is how I, I stop saying me, how, how, how you, how we can see very quickly in microcosm how, how somebody, ca I throw frisbees out to choose people, how somebody catches a frisbee and stands up, I know how they're going to be on stage from that. And then how they are on stage, you know, how they're going to be in life. I mean, and it's, a, it's so I've learned throughout the show, I have to really kind of go with my gut instinct in terms of whether I use people or not, because I have to choose people at random, but at the same time, uh, Sometimes have to reject people, or, or it's that that's become a very uh, and that's not about discovering people's secrets or anything like that. There's a lot of that in the show, but just for um, just how you can get a person in a one small moment, and of course, being being in a room of people, a whole audience, let alone being on stage in front of them. This is just standing up in the audience. Uh, is a is a like an in, intensification, isn't it, of what of what it is in real life, how we how we deal with mm -hmm. people that we meet. So it's it's a very um, to me just that situation is very very telling in, in terms of what people do with that strangeness and anxiety of just suddenly being in front of loads of people. My, the thing I actually really learned from doing the show is what to do with nerves because when I was noticing when people come up on stage, if they're just nervous, the room loves them, right? Because you all you're all feeling, oh, that could be me up there. You have this sort of vicarious warmth, and if I at all made a joke that was ill-judged at their expense, I could, you know, feel the audience turn against me. Um, whereas if, 
But a lot of people come up and they turn the nerves into something else, like they're going to be a joker or they're going to try and spoil the trick or they're going to be strangely odd and detached and sort of unimpressed by everything. All the stuff we do in real life all the time when we're nervous. And the room hates them. You can feel, the, you can feel everybody turning against them. And now they're suddenly on my side. So it doesn't bother me at all if people are like that because I know I've got the room on my side. It's an odd, an odd thing. But after seeing this year after year, I just thought, God, what a, what a great lesson for just how to be in life. It's something I've really learned from the show that if you're nervous, it's fine. Let that sit because people warm to it. It feels very vulnerable. makes you feel very alone and very disconnected. But actually what's happening is everybody's leaning into you and, you know, and uh, just don't, don't turn it into all the other stuff we do because it just turns everybody off. So it doesn't quite answer your question, but I, the, things, like, <laughs> things like that in terms of just things that I've got from people at that, that level. Um, in terms of sort of, you know, the sort of mind reading or discovering, uh, occasionally uh, things have come out on the show uh, which uh, I've sort of gone with a gut feeling on something like yesterday declaring someone was pregnant and she'd only just found out she hadn't announced it to anybody and I'm oh. sort of going, oh, I'm sorry, is that all right for me to say that? And she's like, oh yeah, I'm totally, totally. Um, so occasionally stuff like that, I sort of, uh, but then I've also said, look, I'm gonna, stuff is going to come out during this, and if you don't want to be part of it, please don't come back to the second half. Um, so that sort of thing happens sometimes. But generally, what I'm doing is creating an, a sort of an illusion. I'm creating a um, uh, an, an effect, as we we call it, uh, you know, a kind of a, a a story again that you're telling yourself. So it's not like I'm really walking around in real life going, oh, that person's having an affair. It's not quite like that. You just mm. give the impression that's what you can do. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I, uh, oh, I just want to bring up the show. I can't. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay. I, speaking of people who, who catch Frisbees and don't, um, I'm sitting here with Dory, uh, who's running audio for me, who ca actually caught the Frisbee, mm -hmm. handed it to me, and I came up on stage. Yes, because so, so you don't, no one has to get involved if they don't want right. to. So I came up yeah. on stage, and you were like, yeah, this guy's got a podcast, right? You could tell immediately. Oh, clearly, yeah, clearly, yes. Totally. Clearly a brilliant podcast. <laughs> and now you've got me on it, strangely. Right. Um, <laughs> Dory, you had questions. I know you wanted to ask. I have so many <laughs> questions. Uh, but I'm... I, like Alan, I can't ask most of them, but I, I do. I'm curious because, you know, you are uh, are so trained in psychology and law and mm. uh, mentalism and all of that. But your command of the stage, your your ability to communicate as an actor, you know, mm. on top of everything, is just so spectacular. Oh, and you, you, the room is from the first second, is just completely transfixed. And and. So I'm wondering, did you have any training uh, as an actor? Did you have any, you know, to public speaking, or how how did you marry those two worlds? Because you you own it. Oh, lovely thing to say. Thank you. Um, no, I didn't. But I've I've done the shows for 20 years, and I think they they varied. When I look back on the earlier shows, I think I was getting by just on a sort of just energy, just kind of like hitting the audience with the show. Um, as I've grown up and got a bit older and that's I'm just you know less like that in life uh I think I probably hit different notes throughout the show which I think gives it a different feel and maybe helps with that um because those are the things that keep audiences engaged uh, the sort of shifting uh, notes as you would as an actor um and it is a sort of acting because I'm taking something that's large in terms of the the stuff that I'm saying is 
it's kind of a script and it's, you know, I'm saying the same stuff from night to night and you have to make that feel fresh and like you're sort of making it up on the spot. Um, so uh, I, I, I do think of it in those terms, um, but I don't know how I'd be if I was actually sort of in a, in a play. I'd love to do a play. I, I, I'd love the idea of sharing that experience with other people and not having the whole burden of it on yourself. Um, but it's a very safe sort of acting because then you're also just sort of at the moment, I'm just playing myself. I'm just playing this charismatic version of myself, which is lovely. Um, uh, so, I, yeah, I think it's just come from doing and also working with um, a director forever as well, Andrew uh, O'Connor and Andy Nyman, who both also write the show with me. So the three of us have done these things from day one. And I think I've... I've um, I, I, love all, I love the sort of those strange technical sides of it. Like, you know, you... You know the audience is losing interest because they cough, you know. So now, not, at the moment, with an older audience and this time of year, there's a lot of coughing, and hopefully that's not all on me. But when you start to hear coughs where you don't normally hear coughs, you're losing the audience. So your instinct is to start leaning in and talking a bit louder and upping your energy. And, of course, you mustn't. You have to do the opposite. You have to pull back and you have to go very quiet because then people need to lean in more. So suddenly they're on the edge of their seat again, which is where you want them. Um, so all that kind of stuff and all the voice projection, all of those things that are very kind of actuary techniques. I love all of that. It's all the hidden stuff. I really um, enjoy that sort of hidden technical side of it. It's almost like another magic trick in a way. I, I, I do enjoy that. Um, and it's nice occasionally for that to get noticed, just that sort of aspect <laughs> of it, because don't, people don't know very often ask me about it. So that is, that is nice. But yeah, that's the answer. I think it's just from doing it a lot and just it's, it's a very easy mode for me to slip into, but I don't know how I'd be if I was actually, you know, in a play having to properly act. I don't know. Well, you said, do you have a follow-up on well, that? Well, no, you mentioned you're really an introvert. Yeah. And, you mm. know, to step on stage for that first time and and to, you know, I, the, without that training, you know, understanding where that came from in you, you know, is really fascinating. In this. Well, I, I, I started performing quite early at university and at the time I was I was a real attention seeker. So I probably wasn't, introverted as such then because I hadn't quite settled into anything comfortable I was just desperate for attention so performing came easy and when I started my first shows I used to sit on stage with a semicircle of empty chairs because I'd had people like this was, these were hypnosis shows so it was for people to come up and take part as the audience were coming in so and I did that because it avoided waiting in the wings to walk out on stage because that's where the nerves are when you just you can't do anything you're just waiting to step out um so I thought I'd thought, I don't want to be experiencing that, so I'll just sit on stage. And also, it's quite imposing. Um, so I, and then as I grew up and the need to perform in real life sort of subsided and just be, just became, you know, kind of the thing I do as a job and it was taking care of all of the sort of need for attention. Uh, I'd already found that mode very comfortable, but I think, I think it's quite a common thing. I think most performers probably are a little in, Introverted, mm -hmm. or or maybe I mean you've, you've sure you've interviewed a lot of them, or maybe the opposite. But I think even if they're, you can get very good at having an extrovert exterior. But in terms of where you, it's all about where you recharge, isn't it? I think if you're if you recharge essentially on your own, which I know I do, and even a lot of people, a lot of actors, I'm sure, seem very extroverted. I think probably still just want quiet to recharge, and as opposed to an extrovert that kind of recharges by being in, by being in company. Um, that's really all it is. Uh, and your threshold for kind of um, having had enough. Uh, the other night I went out to um, have a drink with some people. Then we went on 
to another place for another drink. And it occurred to me at the age of 48, it was the first time I'd done that in my life. <laughs> it was the first time I'd gone on somewhere else. <laughs> well, isn't it? This is Broadway, baby. That's the New um, York mentality there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, I just have a, you know, I have a fairly low threshold for sort of um, just feeling, you know, just kind of done. Um, and uh, uh, I think, again, that's sort of common amongst my people. Yeah. Introverts, you, not mentalists. You said, some, you said two things, actually. One was... Um, that your character on stage, it is a character, it's a more charismatic version of yourself. And then mm. you said something just a second ago that was um, that once your your desire to perform in real life subsided and mm. you went on. So introverted, but you want like you find comfort on stage in being this big, this big guy, this big projection of yourself. Is that is that like a, a you obviously don't use that to recharge because you said you need you need mm. quiet and to be by yourself to recharge. But like I'm trying to get at like the the psychological psychological aspects of this. Psychology of it. Um, uh, it's it's a very lovely adrenaline filled experience. I I get to go out. I get to do a show that I know is a good show. I, I hope that doesn't sound sort of conceited to say, but it's very different, I guess, if you're an actor going out and doing, doing a play that you just know isn't very good. It must be a very demoralizing experience. So it's a very nice experience to go out and do a show that you feel you sort of own and feels like a, you know, a, a good show. So that's nice. It's also a show that's really good fun to do. Hopefully it's fun to watch and come out of and all the rest of it, but it's, you know, I always leave on a high. So that's, and if I've had a, if I've had a bad day or, you know, just have, uh, just, fallen into a bit of a rut or whatever during the day just because I've had nothing to do or I'm uh, you know, I'm writing a lot at the moment. So if that, maybe I've just had a bad day with that or whatever. This Doing this show just completely sort of cleans you out. It's like a, it's a, it's just an amazing, um, fun thing to do. And I, that, but it's, it's, it's not like a real life. It's not the equivalent of like going out to a party or something. I wouldn't enjoy that. It's a, it is this sort of oddly controlled uh, thing, but also it's it's the sort of experience where I'm I'm so on my feet. It's 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 not a show that you're just recreating every night, not repeating every night. Rather, you have to recreate it, but not repeat it. As any actor, I'm sure would say the same thing. So, uh, but given that my fellow cast members are people in the audience that could do or say anything, it's a very kind of you know on your toes sort of thing, which uh, puts you into that flow state that. Um, has been spoken about. There's a, a guy called Mikhaili, uh, Mikhaili Csikszentmihalyi, who's mm-hmm. a sociologist. Sure, you've come across this. Talks about the flow state, where your your set of challenges meet your skills, and when that when that's a sort of x equals y line, when the two things are meeting and playing off each other, whether you're playing chess or surfing or doing a show or it could be anything, um, you're in this sort of flow state, which is generally what people describe as their sort of prime state. So that's a very lovely thing, and that's it's. It is a bit different from, um, uh, it doesn't reflect how I'd be spending my time normally, which probably would be tucked away somewhere writing in a coffee shop. That's, that's where I feel I'm, I kind of do recharge. But it's just, it's just another lovely thing to do, and having the contrast of doing both is, is great. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. It's a really lovely stretch of experience to have for a few months. Well, I guess... Well, I was trying to go with this, or hope, or wondering if there was anything there. Was like um, the need, the need to feel in control without being out there, but being out there, but having having it be a character. So it's not really you, right? So like going, it sort of is me. Down there's a very there's very little difference. I, I think of it in terms of a character, in that only in terms of I'm not that. Um, 
not quite that sort of, you know, witty and charismatic in real life all the time. Some of the time, <laughs> on a good day. But, uh, but it's me. It's not, I, I'm not, I'm not, I think it has to be you because otherwise there's no, there'd be no longevity to what you're doing. It would, you know, you'd tie yourself out. So it is me. It's not a character in that sense. But I tend to think of it like that because the, the bit where it's a character to me is the kind of, oh, he can get in our minds and read our minds. That's not, I, I can't quite do that in real life given the, 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 compared to the promise of what it looks like on stage. So that's, that's where the character comes in. But in terms of, if you strip away that kind of skill base, the questionable skill base of what I'm actually doing and just in terms of how I am as a person, I think that's, that's me. It's just a sort of a heightened, mm -hmm. a heightened version in a suit. Do you ever get nervous at all that just the audience is not going to cooperate that things I mean it is a script and you've got a I set I have one format. moment every single night and you may know what it is from having seen it when I'm waiting in silence for something to happen and for the audience to respond in a way and every single night I think it won't happen this will be the night it doesn't happen and every night it just it sometimes it does brilliantly and sometimes I just about scrape through on that bit but it's never not happened but yeah every single night but it's not really nerves I sort of enjoy it I'm going through my head, right, what's the backup again? How do I, what do I do if this doesn't work? I'm trying to remember the last time it happened, which was maybe, you know, three years ago or something. Um, so no, I don't get nervous. I, I, had, a, um, I had an experience of, of getting a thing wrong in the first half of the show, and I got it wrong three nights in a row. This was, I think, back in England at some point, I was warming the, warming the show up there. And the first night it went wrong, and it was a, a thing that, if you're doing any sort of magic, is, is familiar to you, where you... You mess up at the very start. You know you've messed up and no one else knows. Mm -hmm. But you now know this whole thing is going nowhere. So you're frantically trying to find ways of getting out of it and double back. And But while you're thinking that, you're continuing on a sort of autopilot and it's becoming more and more absurd to do that. So at some point you just have to go, okay, this is just going to fail. This bit's going to fail. It's not the end of the world. This bit just won't work. But like 10 minutes of leading someone that's going to go nowhere. So I had that. It happened on one night and I was sweating and I was panicking. And also you realize there's, there's uh, as much as you want to love the audience, there's a kind of a note of hostility because you're trying to fool them at some level and just how, what, what it can spin on, like can spin on a, uh, on a dime. And when you, when you feel something is failing, suddenly like that whole audience feel like they're hostile. Like they were all there the night before. They know what's supposed to happen. Now they're just looking at you. They can see through you. They can see you're a fraud and it's a horrible thing. And then, the, but, but afterwards, five minutes afterwards, or two minutes afterwards, they were all back on board. That thing hadn't worked. And they were laughing at the next point. They were all supposed to laugh. So I thought, okay, it was fine. So the second night it happened didn't bother me quite as much. The third night it happened, it me making the same stupid mistake three times in a row. Um, I was just narrating this experience. I was just kind of, Saying, oh, I've messed it up. This is what I'm feeling. I'm probably going to, it's not going to work. I'm now sweating. I've got this. But it wasn't really bothering me. And it was the last little bit of tension that kind of got released, that last potential for hostility. And then the next night I went out thinking, so what if I could just, just properly love the audience rather than still having that little note of, uh, of hostility? And what would that mean? Which sounds really sappy. And it sounds odd as well after 18 years of touring to be thinking that. But... Um, it was a, it was sort of an amazing little shift that may not have read to anybody else, but in terms of you, stuff you want to bring out with you when you, when you step out, because it changes then how you, there's ideas that I'm trying to communicate in the show, and there's a real difference between commuting, communicating those ideas with a feeling of love and a feeling of um, thinking about six other things that you're trying to balance at the same time. Um, uh, 
So that was a, that was a really lovely uh, thing. Again, I'm only describing my kind of own internal experience of things, which is not really necessarily that interesting. But it's a it's a show about people. It's a show about the audience, and it's a show which is unusual for magic. Normally, the show's about the magician. If you're any sort of magician, it's about you looking clever. This is, I think, I think probably unique in the world of whatever that is. That it's not. It's def- definitely about the audience. So it's I love, and I'll take anything that increases that feeling of a, of a connection with the people I, I, uh, with the people that are sat there. I just, I really enjoy it. And, I, and the fact that it doesn't, doesn't come always easily to a performer. They, you may look like you've got this guy on stage that adores you, but probably he's not or she isn't. There's probably a million other things they're thinking about. Or they might even be doing it on, on autopilot. So you can't take it for granted that that's happening. So to really kind of really lean into that and that the show is conducive to that because it's very much about people and is about the audience that's a really nice thing to explore as a performer and when it's you it's you i'm not playing a part i'm not playing somebody else it's a very it's a very nice little sort of world to a nice experience to be having up there on stage yeah well i i enjoyed it um i think everybody needs to go see it um i agree <laughs> twice ideally two three times yes um so there's three standard questions i ask to wrap up every podcast the okay. first one is what motivates you uh, what motivates me has only ever been what is enjoyable and interesting. Uh, genuinely never had any ambition, as I said, never never thought beyond the thing I'm doing at the time. So uh, enjoyment and, and, and interest, that's it, All right. at the time. Yeah. And second question, what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? If there's a formula for success, it's talent plus energy. And as any good Stoic would say, those are the two things that you can control. You can develop your talent and you can develop the energy that you put it out there into the world with. If you have loads of talent, no energy, it's not going to get very far. And if you have all the energy but no talent to back it up, it's not going to get you very far either. Um, The point is, though, you only need to focus on those two things. And they're both things that are under your control. All the rest of it, what other people do whether you get the job, the right phone call, whether the fates collide in the right way, is fortune. And we used to have a respect for fortune, that there's this other half of life that we can't control. And we've sort of forgotten that. And I think particularly in a very positive uh, goal-setting sort of culture like it is here, it really gets forgotten about. And the trouble with that, it's great to think positively, of course, but the problem is then that if things go wrong, you then got failure to add to a whole list of problems. Like you, you didn't believe in yourself enough. And I think having a healthy respect for stuff goes on in life that we have no control over and that those things are fine. We can decide those things are fine. All the things that we can't control outside of our thoughts and actions, we can decide are fine. That doesn't mean we, doesn't mean we shouldn't go out and change the world if we want to. But even then, there's a difference between me doing my very best to change the world and emotionally committing to outcomes that are not under my control. It may happen a generation later after I'm dead. And you only do a better job if you sort of do distinguish between those things. And I think in any kind of creative career, being able to go, it's just my talent and energy and I don't have to get caught up in the madness of what are other people doing? How come they got the job? How come they're getting paid more than me? How come, how come? Um, None of those things. All of those things are fine. And that, if you let that, thought drip into your soul and have faith that it's true and not just you're trying to fool yourself with it and make yourself feel better. I think it, that there's a real relief in that and it frees you up to, um, to 
do better work and ultimately, I think, be more successful. Brian Cranston has a really nice thing. He talks about going to auditions and how your job as an actor is just to present your character at an audition. It's not to get the job. That is not your job. Your job is hmm. not to get the job. Your job is to present yourself well and present the text in a compelling way and so on. It's, um, it's again, very good sort of stoic advice. That's, it's a, if you look for him on YouTube, it's a really great watch. Hmm. Okay, so final question then. Hmm. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life. I'm not very good at sound bites. Apologies. Sorry, but go on. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't need to be a sound bite. Yeah. Um, if you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I don't think I would. I don't think I would. I, would. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can think of a small handful of things I've loved. The thought of going back and seeing them again and again. I, it, you just get sore. <laughs> so I'd, 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 I'd pass up on that. It sounds like a sort of torture. <laughs> All right. Uh, so where can we find you online? What are your social uh, handles? My social, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Darren Brown. It's D-E-R-R-E-N, which is a strange spelling, at Darren Brown. I'm on Instagram as well, the same thing, at Darren Brown. Um, I do a lot of street photography, so I put some of my stuff on there too. Um, that's it, really. I, I'm, I'm DarrenBrown.co.uk, which is my... Uh, my website. I think that's it. Probably about the extent of my social media um, foray. Oh, yeah, the show. The I'm forgetting the important one. Yeah. Also, very importantly, <laughs> um, DarrenBrownSecret.com yes. is the is the page for the show. So that's where people can get tickets and find out more about the uh, more about the show. And I'm running till January, uh, so I've still got a little while to go. Yeah. Cool. All right. You can get more of me at thetheaterpodcast.com or broadwaypodcastnetwork.com slash TTP. You can find me online at theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter, facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Please leave a rating, a review. I love to read those. Uh, this is edited by Matthew Hendershot. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And Darren Brown, thank you for being the guest on today's episode. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.